our church is an Arab church, but not Muslim. It is Eastern, but not Orthodox, and it is Catholic, but not Roman. A mix of the three. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today I'm speaking in good faith with the very Reverend Father Nabil Haddad, the Dean of St. Peter and Paul Old Cathedral in Amman, Jordan, which is a Greek Melkite Catholic church. I'll ask about that in just a minute. He's the founder and CEO of the Jordanian Interfaith Coexistence Research Center, JICRC, doing some amazing work that's been recognized that we'll talk about as well. Father Haddad, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you, Steve. Uh, I'm very happy and honored to be here again. How far is Erbil from Amman, the place you were born? I was born in the in the north of Jordan, south of the city of, of Erbil, in the vicinity that Prophet Elijah was born, near Ajrun, the mountains of Gilead, and now it is part of the governorate of Erbil, the northern part of Jordan, which is bordering the uh, troubled country of Syria. Well, you bring up an excellent point, bringing up the prophet Elijah, which is how much of the events in the scriptures happen in Jordan and the area. Often we hear the Holy Land, we think Israel, at least here in the U.S. Yes, prophet Elijah, we take pride in this, that he is of a Jordanian origin. He was birthed in Jordan, and he ascended to heaven on the chariot of fire on the eastern bank of the river Jordan and Bethany beyond the Jordan. So uh, these two events in the life of Prophet Elijah, in addition to other to other events that took place, uh, show us that 80% of the geography in the Bible, of the geography of salvation, took place in my country, in the holy land of Jordan, beyond the river Jordan, to the east of Jordan. Let me go back to what the Greek Melkite Catholic Church is. It is an Eastern Church, but it is in communion with the Holy See, if I recall. Yes, Steve, we are a Uniate Church. We are an autonomous Eastern Rite, a Byzantine Rite Church that became united with the Holy See, with the Roman Catholic Church, and it kept, it preserved its rites, its traditions, as we call ourselves as the best ambassadors of the East to the West, talking about the Eastern Church and the Western Church. We are called Greek Melkite Catholics, Catholics in theology, Melkites. This is also another name that we were given, which means royalists from the Syrian language, which means royalists. But we are not Greeks. We are very Arabs. So the the Melkite Catholic Church is a very Arab. It was born in, in the Arab countries, and it is the second largest Catholic church united with, uh, with Rome. The Melkites, we are, as I always present myself, our church is an Arab church, but not Muslim. It is Eastern, but not Orthodox. And it is Catholic, but not Roman. So the, we, are, we are a mix of, of the three. In that heritage, growing up and being born into this, what are your earliest memories of either religious rites or family practice at home? What were your first memories of, of being aware of, of religion and church? Actually, the early memories were of greatest influence on me. I grew up in a very devout Christian family. My mother was uh, a very devout Christian lady. I remember from the age of three that I insisted on imitating and celebrating uh, the liturgy at home uh, using uh, my mother's and uh, dad's uh, towel <laughs> and uh, showing that those vestments were of great attraction. And this attraction took me uh, through the years until... Uh, until I insisted that I wanted to go to a seminary. I did go to the seminary in my early years. We went to a seminary, and then after graduation from the high school, we moved into the Grand Seminary. Those years uh, have 
labeled my heart and, and my way of thinking. I was really looking at what is best for me to be the priest uh, as I always wanted to. And of course, after graduation from the Grand Seminary and uh, finishing my philosophy and theology studies, I opted to be a priest with a family. In our right, we are encouraged, or at least we are given the the choice to be celibate or married clergyman. This is how I uh, got married. And then a uh, few years after that, I was ordained. I have been a priest for 30 years. And through those years uh, before the ordination, I also had the opportunity to be exposed to other cultures, leaving the seminary, going into a very strange environment, going to Saudi Arabia, Mm. working for an American military program. And I was in between uh, Muslim Bedouins and Western military and ex-military. And uh, I was the go-between those two extremes, which influenced more and more my priesthood and and my my work to come afterwards which is early experience at diplomacy i would say yes it is it is more than a diplomacy it is more it is peace building and the calling is there that the lord wanted us to be peacemakers i always had the conviction that a priest should be a priest for all i am a catholic priest but the minute i do this only for the Catholics. This means the end of, of my priesthood or the failures hmm. of priesthood. This is where I, where I have more and more explored the importance of reaching out to others. What I'm doing here in BYU, what I'm doing in Utah, what I'm doing with the LDS brothers and sisters is part of that calling to reach out to, to the others. Because things have changed over the decades, when you were younger, did you have any difficulty being an Arab Christian, being Christian in a majority Muslim society? I grew up in a Muslim-majority society, and it's really strange now to think about the old days. I used to go to attend the morning mass at 6.30 in the morning, and 7.30 I'd be going to school, and I would be attending the first class at 8 o'clock, participating in the Islamic education Islamic religion class. Hmm. And many times I would be competing with the Muslims in reciting and reading from their Quran. And on many, many occasions, if not all the occasions, I always did better than my Muslim, <laughs> Muslim, Muslim colleagues. I did not feel in those early years that I had any contradiction between being the Christian at 6.30 in the morning and the student in an Islamic class at 8 o'clock a.m. Going back home, I never heard my mom or dad tell me not to deal with, uh, with the Muslim neighbors because they are, they are non-Christians. On the contrary, we always felt this fraternity, the amicable atmosphere that we had. My grandfather, who was uh, a very prominent figure in, in our big village, uh, had many Muslim friends, and I did not know the difference Actually, some of his friends, I thought they were his brothers, and they were very devout Muslims. We grew up in such an environment. Uh, The Arab Christians, especially in Jordan, they have learned to be the good Christians. They learned, I think, their calling is to be the salt of their society. This is how we were, and this is how we will continue to be, with the great difference and the development that uh, these days uh, Christians in our region are facing this oppression. They have been the victims and they have taken so much pain because of the hatred of the so-called Islamic terrorism. But that doesn't reflect the attitude of the Muslims you grew up with. Not really, not really. But I could see that there became a difference in the attitude, in the public attitude, in the societal attitude in the region. I think that up until 1979, up until the uh, Islamic Revolution in Iran, the term became very well heard in the ears of many of the Muslims in, in our Middle Eastern society. I believe 
after that, we started to see a change in the in the attitude towards the Christians in our region in particular. You've been recognized even by King Abdullah II for your work with the Jordanian Interfaith Coexistence Research Center, which you founded. What was the moment when you decided, I need to start an organization? How did that happen? Thank you, Steve. This was uh, the beginning of a solid approach that uh, I really wanted to start before under the umbrella of my church. And I wanted this to be an interfaith, an interreligious endeavor. And I always, I always felt that Arab Christians have a responsibility to educate their society, to reach out to their neighbors. Living as a Christian, I cannot forget, actually, I have to live this 24-7, that I am a witness for my Lord Jesus Christ. And I am very familiar with other societies. But in my, in my case, in my country's case, in our society's case, I think that my calling is to love my neighbor. And that neighbor, in my case, is the Muslim. And many, many Muslims, they do not understand our faith. They do not understand our traditions. So it is our responsibility. And talking about this as a small in number, I always refused the term minority. I am not a minority. And I feel that you as an LDS church, I believe you have the same thing. You are small in number in the United States of America. But you give your society, your country, a flavor. It is our responsibility as Arab Christians to give that flavor. And I believe the Arab Christians, on many cases, they were successful in doing this. Not all the societies of the Middle East. And suddenly came 9-11. It was the West and Islam. And as Arabs, we were counted part of, of Islam. Unfortunately, many people in the U.S., for example, they didn't know that there were, there were Christians who were Arabs. People are still surprised sometimes. Yes, and the English-speaking Americans here, they find it very strange to hear an Arab singing in a church. It is impossible. Talking about this, I remember in 2007, I was in Iowa State University during the caucuses of 2007. I spoke at the Iowa State University, and this young student, after I, I gave my remarks, he asked me a question. He said, Father Haddad, when did you become a Christian? I told him, son, I have been a Christian only 2,000 years. Uh, uh, we <laughs> Arab Christians were there the day of Pentecost. Yes. They were there the day of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ at the River Jordan. This is our legacy. This is our tradition. This is our history. So we were counted to be a part of the Islamic society. Maybe we should be, as Arab Christians, we should be blamed for that because we did not do enough to reach out to the Western world that Arab Christians are there and exist. That we are, if you read the book of Acts, chapter 2, Arab Christians were there. Maybe we did not do enough, and this is our responsibility. In 2001, after 9-11, I thought Arab Christians have a role to play, and we did what we were supposed to do trying to connect the East with the West, Islam with, with the West. The best ambassadors for the West in the Muslim world are your Arab Christians, brothers and sisters. You know the language, you know the culture. Exactly. And we are the best ambassadors of the Islamic world and of the Arab world to the Western world. We are great diplomats with a long experience of coexistence with, the, with Muslims for 1,400 years. That's why I thought after 9-11, it was very important for us to do something of value. And this is where we started. I founded the, the first and the only non-government-based organization, interfaith-based organization in Jordan, the Jordan Interfaith Center in 2003. You bring people to the U.S. and you bring students from the U.S. also to Jordan. You go to conferences and you speak together. What is the goal of those meetings and of those cultural exchanges? What do you want to happen? I believe 
it is very important for Arab Christians or Eastern Christians to take the initiative. We have to be aggressive in promoting peace because at the end of the day, we are the beneficiaries. We are the benefi- I think you've started a new bumper sticker, aggressive in promoting peace. Yeah. I like that. No, aggressive. Aggressive <laughs> is here to go on a very steady, sustainable, brave steps that you lead. Peacemakers are not the submissive. Peacemakers are heroes. And heroism requires not aggression, but aggressive people. And I believe Arab Christians have that responsibility. We want to make peace because we are the first beneficiaries. Hmm. I see it as a very, a very legitimate and sacred act of selfishness to build peace because I am supposed, I'm called upon to be the peacemaker. When we build peace in our, in our region, our society, we are protected. I want Steve, I want my children and my grandchildren to live in peace. This is why I believe it is my task, it's my duty, it's my mission. I am a missionary of peace in my own society, in my own country. And I want my Muslim neighbors to feel this. When I call on our Christian brothers and sisters in the West to come to Jordan, I want to show my Muslim neighbor that I am real, that I am a Christian, that I am in communion with my Christian brothers and sisters, regardless of their, of their, of their sect or of their denomination. We believe in the Lord, we believe in God, we believe in, in Jesus Christ as a Savior, and I believe this is so important for us to join hands and to work together this is why I call on my, on my brothers and sisters, of the Christians in particular. We want to see you with us back there in the Holy Land of Jordan. I want to worship with you. I mean worship with you. We want to eat together. We want to talk together. We want to live together. We want to walk in the sea together. I don't want to see groups of, of tourists coming to Jordan. We want to host you as our brothers and sisters. This is why I call on all our listeners today here that please, when you come to Jordan, come to your brothers and sisters. We feel so proud to receive checks or in-kind aid, humanitarian aid. But trust me, Steve, this is not enough. We need to see this fraternity, this bondage, this relationship this uh, brotherhood that we we have together and we want to show it to our Muslim brothers and sisters and come and learn from each other. We have been so artistic in living for 1400 years. This wisdom needs to be taken very seriously and cherished. We cannot leave the Middle East, the Holy Land. We cannot leave it without support. This support, in my opinion, The first priority to show that support is for the brothers and sisters come and demonstrate that support on the ground. Let the Muslims see this fraternity. I want to ask about the progress, some of the successes that you've seen with your organization in bringing people together, opening different people's eyes to each other's lives. Uh, Thank you, Steve. It was not easy. And I like to share with you today that peacemakers are sometimes misunderstood. And peacemakers sometimes, they receive bullets in their chests. But the worst injuries they receive is from the back. When you talk to non-Christians, you expect them to misunderstand you. But to have those injuries in your back, that means your own people, they don't believe in what you are trying to do. It's not easy. But when you look at the successes and the achievements, the accomplishments, you realize that you are on the right track, you are in the right direction. On many occasions, I have been blessed to receive endorsements of what, what, what I have done in JICRC. At the end of the day, my church, my faith, 
should get the credit of this because the Lord had been very gracious and generous in helping me. I was blessed to be uh, the media responsible number one man for the pontifical visits of John Paul II, the saint of the Catholic Church. In 2009, this was in 2000, in the, th- in the beginning of the third millennium. In 2009, uh, I was blessed to be the only representative in the mosque of the King's Mosque to receive and welcome Pope Benedict, to welcome His Holiness on behalf of the Christians and the Muslims. This is an honor, I believe, maybe 6.5 million Jordanians wanted to have. In uh, 2014, I was in charge of the media committee for the pontifical visit of Pope Francis on the 24th of May, the second day, on the Day of Independence, I was really overwhelmed and honored uh, when His Majesty in a national ceremony, he gave me the honor and he granted me the highest medal in Jordan given to a man of religion, a a religious leader, the Medal of Independence from the First Order. Mentioning this, I also remember the other phases, other programs. We had a program I'm very proud of, which I, I created and was funded by the U.S. taxpayers' money by bringing Muslim imams to the United States of America in the wake of 9-11. The first time in history, a Christian priest leads delegations of high, high-level Muslim imams, leaders, and scholars. And I would tell them how to present their own faith to the Muslim audience. (laughs) I gave them this chance to learn, to educate their audience, and at the same time to learn from the diversity that we see here. And this was not only a Jordanian program, it was a regional program where I brought uh, Muslim imams from Jordan, Syria, and Egypt. There are many, many phases in the life of JIC. 14 years, I am so proud of, but I assure you that We are still in need to work more and more. This is, to me, was one way to show our commitment, our obligation, and our mission, that we are peacemakers. I saw another manifestation of of this uh, when I was asked by the Jordanian TV in 2005 to comment on the funeral of John Paul II which they transmitted live from from the Vatican. I was so surprised to see floods of participants, of worshippers, of people, I will not say Catholics, of people who filled the St. Peter's Square. I could see this live when I was in the studio commenting on this big event to more than 300 million Arab Muslims. I was concerned, what am I going to say to the, you know, for three hours, 30 minutes? This was the event on a Friday. This was the funeral, three hours, 30 minutes. I did my homework. I prepared for the the live transmission. But I was asking myself, what am I going to say to Muslim audience for three hours, 30 minutes? This is not a 10-minute sermon. It's not a (laughs) 15-minute sermon in my church. I am talking on behalf of the church and the tongue of the Catholic Church to the Muslims. And something ignited this idea in my, in my head when I saw mostly youth feeling flooding the square. I asked myself, what are these young people doing here? And we know that Europe is very liberal. The Western Europe, very, what are they doing here? In, in the Vatican, a man who, a holy, holy father, a pope, he, but he died. What are they doing? What do they expect? I knew how much they were attached and attracted to him. I discovered that day, at that moment, before going live, that Pope John Paul II, he was not the Pope of the Catholics. He was the Catholic Pope for all. Hmm. This is something that really gave me strength and perseverance. And again and again, we will continue to do and to be the Christians who are not for the Christians only, but we are supposed to be for all. Love thy neighbor. It is not said what nationality, what religion, what race, what region we are from. This is the greatest lesson. Another lesson which, which gave me 
more strength and encouragement and comfort was a very surprising letter I received January 2016. That morning, on the 6th of January, the day of Epiphany, we celebrated Epiphany on the 6th of January, I received a letter which was a great honor for me, a great blessing from Pope Francis, signed by him personally, signed by him with his own hand, with his own pen, where he commended the work that I do in promoting Islamic Christian interfaith, tolerance, acceptance, fraternity, and coexistence, not only in Jordan, but in the region throughout the world. This was another reassurance that GICRC is on the right track. Yeah, wonderful encouragement. Obviously, what you do is motivated by your faith, by your belief. I wonder if I could ask personally, why do you believe in God? Have you always accepted that? Or was there a time when you suddenly realized, I really do believe, some event or feeling? The more education we gain, the more knowledge, the deeper our achievement in science gives us the very concrete proof that we need that love. I have never had the opportunity or a moment where I questioned God. But I always questioned the fact that why don't we always cherish the love of God? Why do we take God for granted? Hmm. This is the moment that makes us either feel stronger or weaker. The personal relationship which I learned to develop, personal relationship between Nabil, not the priest, between Nabil and God, is those moments that make me try to do a better job, to be a better missionary, a better peacemaker. And I always, when at the time of sadness, and the time of feeling a little bit low, down, I take refuge in the nostalgia in the old days when I always saw my mother sitting the first row, the left side of the church. My mother was illiterate. She had eight children. But I believe she was the best theologian because she knew God. She knew God better than any other theory or, or, or a lesson of theology. Her dogma was that God is love. She lived that, and she taught us, as her children, she taught us that when we resort to that, we solve all our difficulties and problems. And I learned something from my mom. That's the best resort for me. I learned from her that Use your intellect, use your brain, but don't miss using your heart when it comes to the way that you ask your God to help you. Everything I do, whenever I count and depend on my strength, on my power, on my connections, on my intellect, on my education, I fail unless I get that connected to my love in my heart to God. I can picture her sitting on that pew in the church. It's a beautiful description. Is there anything I should ask but I don't know to ask? Something else you'd like to be sure we hear from you? Uh, one of the things that uh, touched my heart here, and I can't uh, help but speak about it, is the first time we had a glance at your temple square on that Friday noon, October 2015. I saw what the family is in your life as LDS. That touched my heart. And that makes me have faith that I can freely and comfortably work with the LDS people because they have that sacredness of the family life in their spiritual, in their social, in their community life. Please don't take your families for granted. Don't take this for granted. You have a great declaration on the family. Please share this experience with others. Share it with your American neighbors. Share it with your Christian brothers and sisters throughout America and the world. And share it with everyone. Let people know that the family is love. And God, our Godfather, he's the one who 
created the family. And every time I come here, I feel so blessed that I learn more about the importance of the family in your life. And this always takes me back to my childhood years in our society where the family was the centerpiece in the society. Beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you. Father Nabil Haddad, it's a pleasure to speak with you in good faith. Thank you. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and to talk to you in good faith and to be with you, to be partners in the faith in our Lord the Godfather. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll talk with a panel of listeners about some of the ideas presented by Father Nabil Haddad. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. In the first half of the show, we spoke with the very Reverend Father Nabil Haddad from Amman, Jordan. He brought up the possibility of being an aggressive peacemaker, of feeling the call to be a bridge builder, even if he's in the so-called minority. Do those ideas resonate with you? We asked a group of listeners to share their thoughts and feelings after hearing the interview. Ross and Chrislyn Elliott are with us. Ross says he's the father of a soldier and loves to jump rope. Chrislyn is the mother of four modern warriors and wife of a peacemaker hippie and Mormon yogi. Jessica Mullen is a learning specialist in BYU athletics who loves the outdoors and hiking. Jane Brady is a writer, editor, and teacher. Maybe because she grew up in upstate New York, she loves trees and has 206 of them in her yard. Listening to Nabil Haddad, I really loved that he talked about how he's a missionary of peace in his society, how he uh, said that, you know, when, when people come to Jordan, he wants them not to come just as tourists, but as brothers and sisters in, in their faith, in their beliefs, and that he just was so kind and open and wanting to know each other and wanting everyone to know about him um, and what he believed. He really seemed to feel this desire to to share and to be kind and to be bold in his belief, but still to be kind and loving. And I can't help but feel that that's something that I too try to do, to be bold in my belief, but in a kind and loving way that it, it's open and that we're greeting each other with open arms, even if we are different, whether it's in beliefs or where we're from. You know, I, I just, I really love that about what he shared. Father Haddad mentioned in his early education, uh, his early life when he lived at home as a Christian Arab, and then he would go to an Islamic school, and how as a child he didn't see any difference, any um, contradiction between the yeah. two lives. And it made me think that, oh, I've had this thought before, that we teach our children what what to see in the world. Mm-hmm. We teach them their prejudices and teach them that we're different from other people. We're not, you know? And I, I love that he that he brought that up. I had an experience this summer living with 26 people from all over the world for four weeks, and it was like a, a mini United Nations, and we got along. We didn't speak each other's languages, but there was, there was no conflict. It, it it was beautiful, and it, it's so it makes me as a mother want to teach, make sure I'm teaching my children our our differences, but but how much more important are our sameness, how much we're all children of God, and I I feel like that's what Father Haddad is doing in such a beautiful way. Yeah, I had a similar experience with him in growing up. I was. Um, I grew up in upstate New York, and I was the only member of my faith in my school, for instance. And I I knew that, but in another way, I had the great opportunity of getting to know so much diversity. I, for instance, when I was older and I learned that Jews had been discriminated against, it was shocking to me because to me, 
Jews were just like me and Catholics were just like me. I knew so much about them because I was friends with them on an everyday basis that just like he mentioned, I felt a fraternity with them. I I was so close with them because I grew up with them. And yet now that I live in a place where I'm a member of the dominant religion and I'm rubbing shoulders with people on an everyday basis that are the same religion as me, I in some ways worry about my children not having that kind of um, melting pot of diversity that I was entitled to grow up in. But at the same time, I kind of enjoy being able to have a lot of friends that are uh, the same as I am in, in my beliefs. So there's pros and cons to both both aspects of it. I loved that I grew up that way and I had my mind expanded and, ha- and was able to learn a, lo- a lot about different um, religions and cultures. Um, and, and I also like to have friends that are similar in their beliefs to me. So I don't know. I think that he's a hero in being able to be um, amongst so much diversity and being an ambassador, as he mentioned several times. And so I think that there's our pros and cons to both. It's so funny that, you know, Jane mentions uh, growing up in upstate New York, because as a teenager, my family moved from a place where we were the majority of the religion here in Provo, Utah, to upstate New York as well, um, where I I was one of the few members of my faith in the school. And it same similar to Jane, it was such a wonderful experience to get to know people from other faiths, from other beliefs, from other religions, because in learning what what they believed and what they felt so strongly about really strengthened my own faith because you learn, I learned how to be kind and how to be loving and how to be open to what others believe. And I find the same thing uh, in my work now. I, I work uh, with student athletes uh, at Brigham Young University, and, and I many of them don't practice the same religion I practice. Many of them are still of the Christian uh, belief, but it is such a beautiful experience, like Chrislyn was talking about, to to learn how to interact and to learn how to embrace and love these, these other faiths and other belief systems and what a privilege it is to to get to interact and to to be part of that, to be bold in what you believe, um, just just as Father Haddad is, I, I I love his strength and his courage, and and I think that that's such a beautiful thing. Father Haddad, being a Christian in a predominant Muslim country, he feels like it's his calling mm-hmm. to bridge the gap, to be a peacemaker, to to love his neighbors. And I've always felt that way my my entire life, that it's good to do. It's good to be a peacemaker. Christ came, he told people to love his neighbors, and then he gave a very powerful example of who his neighbors were. And it's something you see in everyday life. What, what if I could be more like that? What if I could do that more? What if I could be a peacemaker to other people, to bring people together and not um, let them see me as human, and I see them as human, and, and we come together on things. I think it's missing in the world, and uh, if we could continue to take his his message out there to other people, it would be great. It's great to know that he exists, and of all places in the world, to exist in such a place of conflict. Yeah. So I'm so glad that he is building bridges there. And uh, and he mentioned so many of the religions that he has a little piece of, you know. And I just love that he is acting as that bridge builder, and that he's, you know, being such a, a an ambassador of peace just where he needs to be. It seems like the perfect place for him to be um, performing that role. I, I loved his phrase that... Peacemakers aren't submissive, but are heroes. You know, a lot of times in my interpretation of a peacemaker is someone who just kind of sits back and, oh, let's not fight and let's not whatever. But really, when you think about it, particularly like the example that Ross gave about the Savior, the Savior was a hero. It was, uh, he gave a very clear example. He would set a very clear path for for those of his followers that peacemakers is a bold thing to do. It is um, someone who builds bridges, who steps out into the community, and and that they really can be heroes. I, I really loved that phrase. One part that 
resonated with me was when he talked about his early memories of a devoted mother of eight. Yeah. And I actually <laughs> have a mother who is a devoted mother of eight. Um, I love how he talked about that being such a foundation of faith for him. Um, that really provided my foundation of faith. I think of my mother who, in addition to singing in a church choir and serving the women who were around her, she just was an everyday friend to the people around her. And I just love that the way that in my everyday life, I try to emulate that kind of Christian virtue. And I think that those kinds of um, faith traditions shape who we are from a really early age. And I think he really uh, kind of enunciated well how important that is um, in shaping who we are as people. One of the things he said that his mother taught him was how to use his heart when he was asking God for help. Mm -hmm. She said something like, um, you use your brain, you use your intellect, but use your heart when you're asking God for help. I love that idea. I tend to try to work out my own problems with my brain a little too much and forget to listen with my heart. Yeah, that actually reminds me of this E.E. E. Cummings poem um, that I've thought about in conjunction with my mother. But part of it goes, I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. Everything done only by me is your doing. And I like that idea that a person who gives you life can be um, that important and pivotal. And that goes back to his idea of, of a mother or an early mentor helping you to shape your heart in a positive Christ-like way. In my own uh, faith experience, uh, my own growth, my own learning, the basis, the foundations that I got from uh, my parents, from my mom, from my dad, from seeing their examples and those around me of um, using their hearts, especially when it comes to God, a lot of times our minds do get in the way. Um, that as I've had my doubts and my uh, struggles and my concerns and my questions, a lot of times it really has been my heart that's been okay, um, even if it's hurting, even if something's happened um, that's hard, I can still feel that love from God in my heart and that when questions come, and I like that he said, you know, he talked about um, that he never necessarily questioned that God was there, but he questioned why do sometimes we take his love for granted. And that really struck a chord with me because I think a lot of times when something hard has happened in my life, the question is, why would you let this happen to me? And I think, you know, he's never stopped loving me. You know, I, I, I have that faith and that belief that, that God, that my Heavenly Father has never stopped loving me. And, and just because something hard happens, I, I, I can only imagine uh, what Father Haddad has, has gone through in his life. And to still have that strong faith and that love in his heart for God and that desire to share it. Um, it's something that, that I felt myself, and I, I love that. You're listening to a conversation in good faith with a group of listeners sharing their thoughts on my conversation in the first half of today's show with Father Nabil Haddad from Amman, Jordan. Now back to the conversation. Father Haddad talked about his early education and talked about, um, well, the question was asked, how did he come to believe in God? And... Um, it made me start thinking. He mentioned something about the more education and the more experience he'd had in his life, the more he came to believe that there was never a time that he didn't believe, but that with aging, with passing time and more education and more experience of the world, instead of diminishing his faith, it just grew. And I, I'm a dabbler in educating myself, you know, just kind of, I love to read, I love to learn. And I found the same thing in my life, that instead of losing faith, I, I feel like the more I learn about about everything, about other religions, about things that are foreign to me, different cultures, it just buoys up my faith. It builds my faith. It builds my understanding of how God has created all of his children with such beautiful ways of understanding the world. I, I read some Hindu scripture this last summer, and to me, it just 
It was so enlightening. And their goals, their life goals are the same as mine. And the way they look at their brothers and sisters are the same as mine. So reading other religions, scriptures, and even reading science or anything that I might pick up, I can find the themes of how much God loves me and and it builds my faith. So I can resonate with with how he has experienced that. Yeah, I love the way that you express that. And that's the way that I feel too. I like the way he said that, you know, why don't we cherish him more? But I feel like the more life experience I have, the more that I express faith, the more I feel faith, the more it just kind of grows like a snowball for me. But I feel sad for people that have to have facts in order to feel convinced of something. To me, that feels kind of like a cold or sharp-cornered sort of world, kind of a boring world. But a a faith-filled world feels exhilarating and expanding and imaginative. It feels happy to me that I feel faith in my life because to me, that's always reaching. That's always growing. That's always expanding to me. I guess I'm not to the point of having five impossible thoughts before breakfast, but I'm (laughs) almost to that point. Even though yesterday I didn't get a job that I had been hopeful about and trying for and wanted really bad, I'm still super glad that I had the faith in myself to try for it. And I'd be sad if I lived in a world where I didn't have enough faith in myself that I would grasp for that. So I'm glad that I have enough faith to believe the sun's going to rise tomorrow. I'm glad that I live in a world where I believe in people around me, that I believe um, that we can get along as people, that I believe in people like um, Father Haddad exist, and that I'm so happy that they do. To me, it's such a happier place to live. It's such a um, soul-fulfilling and expanding place that I'm so glad I have faith buoying me up and making me um, feel, like, joyful. Father Haddad, at the beginning, he talked about in Jordan, how it he called it the geography of salvation. And I, I was able to visit uh, Jordan and Israel last year and going to see the places where these wonderful experiences, these wonderful things that I believe in from the Bible happened and to, to visit and see and feel what happens there. I, it helps me when I come home to find and recognize the places where sacred things have happened in my own life, um, even if they may not ever be written up in Scripture, um, only in my journal. Uh, but what a powerful experience it is to get to connect and relate to places that are are sacred and holy in my own life, um, that are sacred and holy in my own uh, belief system, in my own church, um, and to connect with those that are so important to people across the whole world. And it's such a powerful experience to me. Um, You know, I think a lot of my sacred space uh, growing up was on the soccer field, as funny as that sounds, or on the basketball court. There was a real um, sense of community and love that I felt there and so much learning. And I think it's, for me, it's important for me to recognize that in my life that there are sacred spaces that are official, that are... um, places where I may officially go to worship, but that I can have sacred spots in my own life, my own geography of salvation, uh, whether it's, you know, just hiking up the canyon um, that's right by my house and and seeing God in places where I might not expect him, but that that they can be really profound in my own life. And, and it was a really wonderful experience to be over there and to feel the power of, of those places. And I can totally understand how he would come up. I love the phrase geography of salvation. Mm -hmm. I thought that was so beautiful. Well, Father Haddad mentioned when he came to Utah Mm -hmm. and went to Temple Square and how I feel like we can tell a lot about this man by how humble he was and how open he was and realizing that that is also a very sacred space. And, um, and he mentions and I could feel his sincerity when he when he mentioned how he felt at Temple Square and how he felt brotherhood and sisterhood with 
with the Latter-day Saints because of the common things that we share, our love for the family, our love for our community, for being peacemakers. It made me feel more inspired to be more willing to be that heroic peacemaker and that person who takes that spirit of openness and faith wherever I go so that I can feel those sacred experiences wherever I am with whoever I'm with in mm-hmm. in any kind of circumstance to be to be open to the humanity and also open to the spirit of the people that I'm with. When I was listening to um, Father Haddad, uh, I was thinking the whole time, how can I take what he's telling me and put it into my own life? What what of his message can I use in in my relationships at work with my neighbors, um, in my relationship with my my family, my own family? Um, one of the big things that that came out of this for me was don't be afraid. Uh, just don't take your family for granted. Share it. I wrote down a, a, that's what I put in my notes. I. I Share it. Be willing to be open about your faith. Be willing to be a Christian to those that you meet. Uh, whether it's, uh, to me, I was thinking, you know, in my work relationships, I work with a lot of people from all over the country. Do they know who I am? Do they know my faith? Do they know that I, I truly strive to be a peacemaker? And so I like that message and uh, I want to take what he's trying to do and, and grow on it in my own life and share it with people and just keep spreading the message. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists and especially to Father Nabil Haddad for sharing his thoughts and time. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation, and we welcome your thoughts and ideas about the program. Reach out to us anytime. Our email is ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find our shows archived online for listening or sharing at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join with us again soon right here in Good Faith.